the things that I believe, like the beliefs that I have, are not who I am. That's a really difficult thing for human beings to hold on to, right? Because if you're not what you believe, then who are you? But it's possible to make a great transformation, great change in who you are. And part of that starts by opening yourself up to the possibility that the things that you believe right now are not the things that you will believe in the future. And that's not only perfectly okay, that's actually a great thing. We are not only capable of really profound transformation, it's happening to us all the time. And so it's hard, it's really hard, but the exciting thing about it is you can be choiceful about that. You can say, I am changing all of the time. What are the things that I'm gonna open myself up to? What am I curious about? Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. How good are you at changing your mind? You know, it's not a question that we tend to ask ourselves very often. Usually we're focusing on how many things other people should change their minds about, how wrong they are, and how we can carefully craft an argument to change their minds about situation, an issue, or a circumstance. You know, I once interviewed a political strategist from Washington who told me that practically no money, time, or resources are spent ever trying to convert voters from one party to the next. There's simply just no point. You know, it takes something when even politicians are resigned to the fact that we rarely change our minds. That, in fact, according to the research, when challenged, we usually dig deeper into our position than before. Essentially, just kind of battening down the hatches to withstand the attack. So that raises the next question, and it's one that's really been on my mind a lot over the past few weeks, especially as in Australia, we're just coming out of an election process which is this. If most of us are terrible at changing our minds, wouldn't it be better instead to focus less on persuasion as a skill and more on how we disagree productively? Now, there's something that I don't remember ever being taught at school. And if we could do that, maybe the very act of disagreeing productively providing the space, the time and the respect to listen to the ideas and perspectives of other people Maybe that would change more minds in the end than our current approach. My guest today is a master of that art. Julia Dar is Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group and founder of BSmart, BCG's Behavioral Economics and Behavioral Insights Initiative. Julia's mission is to enable leaders in government and private sector to apply the science of behavior change across a range of social services and topics including economic development, finance, education, criminal justice, and welfare. Her two TED Talks, and by the way, I cannot recommend more highly that you watch these two TED Talks, 
on how to have constructive conversations have had at last count over 10 million views. She is also, no small fact, the world school debate champion three times. So it's safe to say that she knows a fair amount about crafting a successful argument. However, what drew me to Julia and her work wasn't her ability to persuade, although, as you're going to hear, she is very persuasive. But instead, the vision and the conversation that she has dedicated her life and career to driving, which is how, as nations, teams and families, we can all start to disagree more productively. In this conversation, we dive into why how we've been taught to talk about our differences is broken, including why we take to the online world to find community and connection, and instead, more often than not, we find anger and alienation. The importance of separating ideas from identity, especially separating our own ideas from our own identity, and how learning to debate ideas as separate to ourselves holds the key to constructive conversations. How to craft an argument for maximum success and then use that power to argue for the other side. Now, this one might take a minute. You might want to press pause, just digest this one. Um, takes a bit of a stretch, but as a tool, the idea of arguing for your side and then swapping and arguing for the other side has completely transformed both the clarity of my thinking, my ideas, and ultimately my decision-making. Why every conversation should start with shared reality, an idea or intention that you can all agree upon before you move into the issues or the conversations where you have differences. And finally, the most beautiful and game-changing question I have heard in a very long time. What can you share that will help me see what you see? In Julia's words, we need people with the technical skills of debate and persuasion not because we get to be right, but because we get to change people's minds and change our own. Now, as part of this conversation, you're going to hear her ask me what I've changed my mind about recently. And as you will hear, it took me a little bit by surprise. But honestly, I haven't been able to get that question out of my mind since. You know, it it's easy to believe that we need to take a stance on our viewpoints every chance we get, right? Like we, we need to be prepared in person, online, at the dinner table, we need to be ready to defend our beliefs at a moment's notice, lest we let the other side, you know, brackets, the enemy win. And you know what? I think I'm changing my mind about that. Which, as someone who's not backwards about coming forwards with my viewpoints, definitely marks a major change in my own approach. Now, we know factually that confrontation doesn't work. It doesn't change people's minds. But more than that, what if it also robs us of the ability to find each other, to discover the places, the shared realities where we can meet, where we can agree, where we can connect and where we could possibly take action together on the things that we care about and the desires that we have that are bigger than our divisions. And maybe in doing that, we might change our own minds. One of my all-time favorite Rumi quotes says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field, and I will meet you there. Now, I don't know where that field is, but I do think that it would look a lot like that. Now, on to a few announcements, very quick. Myself and the team, we are taking a break over summer, or in my case, the balmy Australian winter. 
So for the next six weeks, we have handpicked three of my all-time favorite Golden Aldi episodes to keep the momentum moving, keep the ideas flowing while we refuel our tanks and for many of us travel all over the world to see our families for the first time in a really long time. Now, these are all episodes that over the past three years have stuck with me and in different ways radically reshaped my thinking on different topics. If you're a long-time listener, I think you're going to enjoy the refresher. If you're new to the Inside Influence crew, strap in because these are going to be one hell of a ride. We're also still planning to launch my new virtual program, The Influencer Code, in the second half of this year. So if you're not already on the wait list to find out when the doors open before anybody else, jump onto my website. There's also a link in the show notes. As a few of you know, it was originally planned and I had hoped to bring it to you during the first half of this year. However, life, COVID, floods and all the rest of the beautiful tapestry of of the world as it is at the moment, that plan didn't go according to plan. However, as one of my team said to me recently, the good news is we are expert curveball catchers now. So on that note, on the note of being an expert curveball catcher, Sit back, stride out, drive safe, and enjoy the beautifully insightful brilliance of Julia Da. Welcome to the podcast, Julia Da. Thank you so much for having me. Julie and Julia, I feel like we're in a movie. I know, I know. I I feel like I should have some kind of like witty joke ready to go about that, but <laughs> I had not thought about it until you just mentioned it. Um, I want to kick off the way that I always kick off this podcast, and that is to ask the question, you know, what is one idea that's just having a lot of impact on your thinking right now? It could be old, it could be new, it could be on topic, off topic. But it's just simply because people that are out there on the fringes of incredible new ideas tend to just have access to ideas before the rest of us. So I just want to tap your brain on that one. The thing that I'm thinking about at the moment multiple times a day is this idea that hope is the infinitely renewable resource. Like It's incredibly multiplicative in terms of conversations. And it actually, for each of us as individuals, it costs us nothing to make a commitment as you like come into a space, as you come into a conversation to say, I'm going to like, be the person who incites joy. I'm going to be the person who brings hope. And if you think about that in the context of your individual relationships, but also if you work on major social change, you're trying to have major influence on a large number of people, it can feel really slow. I think if you're really slow, sometimes it's hard to feel like anything you are doing matters. And the people around you probably feel that way as well. And so I really hold on to that idea of hope as the infinitely renewable resource. You just, my brain just kind of went in a multitude of different directions when you said that. The first one was I was talking to Raj um, Sisodia last week, the author of Conscious Capitalism. And I asked him, I said, you know, this must feel very slow to you. Like this is a hugely important movement and you have been working on this for so long. And it's now a global movement, but it's obviously not, it never moves fast enough for the person who's who's driving it. What, what have you learned? What have you learned on that journey? And he said, you know, the biggest thing that I have learned is courageous patience, to have courageous, courageous patience. patience. And I loved, I just loved that idea. I repeated it to so many people since. 
And the other thing that I thought of was a piece of advice somebody gave me last week, which was they said, if you, um, if something, if you're not happy about something or it's causing you negative emotion, then go general. Like don't get specific about how you're feeling. Don't tell yourself specific stories or use specific language. But if you want to feel hopeful and if you want to feel, move your emotions into a positive space, then go specific. Think about the specific things that you're happy about, the specific things that are working, because the more specific you get on something, the more you tune yourself into that emotion. And what you're talking about there is if you make a commitment to being the voice of hope, the um, the person who brings the energy, a part of that is just getting specific with people about, okay, these, this is what we're doing. Like, this is what's working. Look at this. Look at this. And then staying general about the other stuff. About the challenge. I was saying that there are, there are always things to be hopeful for. There are things to be inspired by. I love that idea of saying you can extract, abstract a little bit from the challenge. And that's not saying that you, you don't care, you're not invested, but to say, look, like, it's not ideal. <laughs> let's, let's stay general. It's, it's not ideal. It's not what we would want. But here are the green shoots, the like, bright spots that are the source of inspiration. Shining a very specific laser light on it. Just going, you know, that that is what it is. We can't change it, but look at these. Look at these things. Okay. All right. Well, I wanna I wanna talk to you about um debate and Please. discourse. Yes. And helping us disagree productively. And you know, you and I first talked, I don't even know when. Was it a a year? Maybe ago? almost. Maybe almost, almost a year ago. A year ago. And I had found your your TED Talks and was just deeply impressed by the way that you approached the art of disagreeing. And I feel like this is something worldwide right now that, and specifically laser focus in our families, in our communities, we just need to get a lot better at. And I'll put my hand up for that as well. Um, you had this beautiful quote that I wanted to read just to start this discussion, which was, public discourse is broken. We go online to find community and connection and we end up feeling angry and alienated. We're so scared to get into an argument that we refuse to engage at all. Why? I know that's a very broad, very broad question. Why is that? Why is that now more than ever? It's such a, it's a great question, by the way, and you can probably already tell. It's obvious. I'm a very positive, very optimistic person. And I spend nearly all my time thinking about negative emotions or things that make us really uncomfortable. Disagreement, division, regret, despair, and how we move through those, not always past them, but often through them um, to, to a more positive place. Why, why is it so difficult? There are lots of complicated contextual reasons, right? Some of that is about the way in which we consume media or the way in which it's really easy to only consume media that plays back to you things that perhaps you already believed. It's very easy to have your existing worldview, your existing prejudices reinforced. And for a lot of folks, not everyone, but for a lot of people, it's really easy um, to stay in a community that reinforces those places as well. And so that's the that's the big part of it. The more challenging part as we think about like well, what but what work can I do on myself in that context is I think it is hard. It has always been hard to sit with that discomfort 
of saying the things that I believe, like the beliefs that I have are not who I am. And that's a that's a really difficult thing for human beings to hold on to, right? Because if you if you're not what you believe, then who are you? But it's possible to make a great great and like transformation, great change in who you are. Um, and part of that starts by opening yourself up to the possibility that the things that you believe right now are not the things that you will believe in the future. And that's not only perfectly okay. That, that's actually a great thing. It's a, it's a really good thing. And there's some wonderful research where it's a very simple design, but very elegant. Effectively, they ask individuals, like, how, like, do you think you'll be a different person in 10 years? And people sort of look at themselves and say, like, no, like this kind of it, like what, like what you've got now, like I'm um, kind of finished. I am like, the destination yeah, I consider myself yeah. to be complete. <laughs> We've, we've arrived and you're not saying I'm perfect, be like, this is, this is kind of it. And then to another group of people, they say, are you a different person today than you were 10 years ago? And of course, people say, like, are you joking? Like, totally, like the things I eat and the places I go, the things that I care about, the things I spend my time, money, energy on are totally different. It's like, if you put these two people together, you'd say, oh, like, these are different humans and of course the punchline for all of that is we are not only capable of really profound transformation it's happening to us all the time and so it's hard it's really hard but the exciting thing about it is you can be choiceful about that you can say i am changing all of the time what are the things that i'm going to open myself up to what am i curious about and there's great freedom i was just thinking about the 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 kind of spectrum of that the the fact that we you know, that we are not our ideas, our identity, you know, we are not our identity, we are not our ideas, we can change. There's great, great freedom in that. But there's also the other side of the spectrum, which is the fear, I think I'm going to put words to it. I don't know if they're exactly right. The fear that if I change what I believe, everybody around me who, you know, as far as my kind of nervous system is concerned, my survival depends upon my love, my connection, my sense of intimacy, community. If I change my mind, I lose that, which again, as far as our primitive brain is concerned, is is all, is is our very ability to survive. How do we find a place in the middle where we can separate ourselves enough from the fear of separation? Not necessarily in the world of freedom where we're changing our mind every five minutes because hey, hey, you know, let's just it's another day. Um, how how do we move through that spectrum of, of fear and freedom? Ray Dalio is the founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater says, you have nothing to fear from knowing the truth. I think feedback is useful because you have nothing to fear from knowing the truth. And I find that an inspiring idea. But on the other hand, there are lots of things that you have to fear by going on a journey to un- discover whatever the version of the truth is for you. So that it is a valuable aspiration to hold but lots of us have lots of things to fear by starting that journey of discovery to whatever the truth is i do think um it can begin like for yourself maybe with your loved ones of just regularly having a conversation about things that you have changed your mind about just normalizing the idea that we have changed our mind and and you 
see this a little bit in um, your young, think like primary, elementary, school age children who have, like, they go through different obsessions, right? They're like dinosaurs and then Lego and then fire trucks. Um, and that's terrific. And you, you know, if you don't see them, like if there's a child who's not in your life really regularly and you come back into their lives and they're very over dinosaurs, right? So they've changed their mind, they've changed their preferences. And it's a little bit embarrassing for you that you haven't like haven't caught up. And, but now <laughs> now we're on to Lego. hundred dollars on a on a perfectly wrapped dinosaur. Yes. How embarrassing! How embarrassing! Like the dinosaur is coming home with you. Exactly. Exactly. And that, but that's really normalized for them. And of, of course, this is just a stage of uh, one of many stages of human development for them. But it is also a, we say that's a really natural thing. And I think that gets more and more uncomfortable for us. The, the longer we go down a path, the longer you go down a career path, the a little bit suspicious I think we sometimes get of people who have very varying interests or who are always exploring something different every time we run into them. And there's actually something to be admired about that, something to be explored about that to say, what, what is it that allows you to kind of continually involve the places that you give your attention, the places that you choose to give your attention. And those can be two really more comfortable starting points. One, can you just start talking to people about things that you have changed your mind about and what's led you on that journey? And then also just saying, where, where am I giving my attention now that I wasn't giving my attention a year ago? And what and, and what's that about? What's what's changed in my life? What's changed in my set of beliefs? What's changed in my environment? That means that it's happened. There's no value judgment there. Just my attention is going in different places. Mm. I'm just thinking how amazing that would be, almost as a conference topic. Yeah. To get your team together, you know, what are the things we have changed our mind about? What and explore that rather than getting a speaker up on the stage, which is, you know, I'm here at a conference today to do exactly that to talk about you know what I know for sure right now and yeah. preface the right now um but you know what have you changed your mind about like what what has adapted show me your adaptability show me the progress in your thinking so we, we can also make progress in our own thinking right and just honoring also that people have really different starting points sometimes I think people don't share those things because they say like, maybe this was obvious for everyone else like maybe I was my journey was I was starting further down the mountain than everyone else maybe other people already knew this and so it's a bit embarrassing to say it but I actually say to people if you if you are someone who hires people but also if you're someone who's looking for a job this is a terrific question to ask people to say is this a is this an organization that is open to new ideas? Is this a person who's capable of flexibility, but is also capable of real humility about their own ideas and can put some safe distance between like, who am I as a worthy and valuable person and what do I believe? And say those two things are not the, not the same thing. I know, I know you've said before that one of the questions missing in politics is, you know, what have you changed your mind about and why? And when I read that, I was just like, yeah, because that is exactly a conversation. We're in the middle of an election, as as you probably right. know, at the moment, um, voting starts in a couple of days. And I said to my husband just a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you show me, show me the politician 
who will get up in the the general media and say, you know what, given all the information that he or she had access to, I would have made the same call. Or, you know what, having listened to the opposition's argument, I think they make a fair point. You know, show me somebody who has conviction in their ability to be able to um, collaborate and come together as much as they have conviction in their ability to be able to stand apart and go, no, I don't agree. That is somebody I would vote for. But this constant disagreement by almost um, duty, a duty of disagreement, is it's numbing. You know, I can't tell one person from them. I don't take anybody seriously because nobody could possibly disagree on every single thing every single day. It's just not humanly possible. Right. And it's toxic. It's toxic to progress. And and you it's look, you say okay, I feel some empathy for people who are stuck in a system where they know that this is one of the ways in which they can generate attention. But you're exactly right to say if we are to make progress. It is actually really helpful to start by saying, what do we agree on? This in social psychology, you talk about a shared reality and it's okay if that's very small and it is terrific if it's very broad and it can be the sign of a really healthy democracy. This isn't a conversation that we have in the, like during this current election campaign in Australia, you don't typically see it in other countries to say there is not very much that divides us and that's perfectly okay. People still have a choice between parties. And that's like we are trying to ask who do you think is the most responsible and effective steward um, of the country? But it is okay if the <laughs> distinction between the two parties is not very wide. Yeah. And it's actually, I would say from a marketing standpoint, it's advantageous because if we can get absolutely clear about the things that separate them, because there aren't many. That way we can make a more informed choice. But when it, there's so many things, it's very hard to make an informed choice because you're just drowned in differences at that point. It's so true. And I think a, a lot about, so one of the other places where I spend a lot of my time and energy is how do you make work meaningful for people? And so some of that is do people have space where they can bring forward their ideas? Some of it is do they feel welcomed and included? Do you feel respected in the way that you're paid and the way that you're treated? And this is such an important part of that is actually helping people to have those productive conversations, give people choice. But if you're the employer in this situation and you're competing for talent, you're marketing yourself, um, what you're looking for is a sustained advantage that is not easy for other people to replicate. And it's not bad to say, you know, we are not that different from our competitors. There are many other people who hire the same types of people that we hire. And so therefore, like, there's, there's not a ton of differentiation. Therefore, at the C-suite, the conversation we're having is what is our sustained advantage, not easily replicated, even if that's really small, that like, then it better be great. Yep. And it's easier to comprehend and it's easier to hold on to yep. As, yep. As, the, as the receiver. Back to um, your which, positive specificity. Yes, exactly. Positive specificity. There you go. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to not try and say that after (laughs) a few glasses of wine, but I can say it now, first thing in the morning after a cup of coffee. Um, I just want to go back in time for a second. Um, And, you know, I've heard you say that at 10 years old, you loved to argue. And I was like, me too. 
and that your family hated it, which, you know, coming from a very British family, so did so did mine. Um, <laughs> confrontation not being a massive thing um, in England. And they, it made me laugh because you said they sent you to a debate team. So you would go out somewhere else to argue. And you ended up winning the World Schools Debate Championship three times. And I just had this thought was, were your family, you know, were your family proud in that moment? Or were they just like, oh, my goodness, we, we, we sent her away to make What have we done? What, what have we, we created a monster? Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is hilarious. I, I think they are very proud. I think it is such a valuable skill for young people at all skill levels, right? Whether you do one debate in your life, whether you do thousands of debates in your life, this is a really useful way of being able to say, this is, this is what I believe um, and why. Um, and this, uh, these are the objections that I have to, um, to a different set of beliefs that have been put forward. That is such a useful and valuable thing to know how to do and give um, young people the confidence to stand up and do it. A very good friend of mine, also a world champion debater, Bocio is his name, has actually just written a book that will come out this year called Good Arguments. And one of the things, it's a really extraordinary story. Bo arrives in Australia um, from Korea speaking very little English. And in his school aged, uh, his late primary school aged. And talks about the power of debate for someone not in their native language, new to, in this case, new to his country, and say, being having to say, I'm going to have to stand here um, and make my case. And you should think, like, how much admiration do you have for a young person in that moment? To, but also, what does that unlock for them, right, in terms of what is actually possible here? Um, like, what, might, what else might I be able to do? I've always found it very hard to understand. I mean, the two the two skills missing for me at the moment, if you look at the general education system, one is exactly what you've described, the, the ability to be able to communicate an argument coherently and also hear somebody else's and find a shared point in the middle. I mean, that is a skill that will impact your entire life and every relationship you're ever in. And the other one is financial education. Yes. How to understand debt, money, how it works. And again, that is something that will impact every area of your life. But that's a conversation for no education reform is a is another it's a different episode folks that's a very different episode um but one of the premises of um but actually before i go into that what is the the general premise of debate for anyone who, who isn't really clear on what debate is it's just people arguing what is the the most basic premise of debate yeah so if you've if you've never seen one there's plenty on the internet it's not too late for you uh Think about it this way, there's, you, you put an idea on the table, something that we could reasonably disagree about. We should legalize all drugs, outlaw all forms of gambling, uh, that it is, it's reasonable um, to break an unjust law violently, for example. And then you, you take these two groups of people, in this case, let's imagine that they're, that they're school children, and you have one group um, to argue in favor of that, and one group um, to, to argue against it. And you ask people to put forward positive arguments in support of their case. What are the reasons why you believe that is true? Remembering that they haven't chosen it, right? They have just been assigned to believe this for the moment. And then 
the other side will respond to that. And so it goes back and forth um, until you're done. But Julie, the piece that you called out that I think is really important is a lot of people might say, because this is, is how it looks if you're an audience member, oh, debating is about talking. It is one form of public speaking. But it's actually really important to say in the context of a debate that might go for an hour, any individual might speak for about eight minutes of that. Debate is actually about listening, is listening and responding. Um, and what's what is in the space between your observation and your response. And that really, I'm glad you pointed that because that really struck me going through all of your work. Um, I was really struck by how much of it was to do with respectfully holding space for somebody, respectfully listening, respectfully setting it up so that somebody else can be heard and you can find a place in the middle to be able to hear each other. Because again, I have watched debates. I love debates, but even I was like, well, you know, the point of a debate is to craft an amazing argument and yeah. have it be heard. And yes, that is a part of it, but the very fabric of debate is actually to create a container so that everybody can be, everybody can be heard fairly. The other thing that hit me when, and you hit upon it then, you said, we don't get to choose our sides. And that was the other thing that struck me because I thought, you know what, that's so true to life. We think we choose our sides, but actually, you know, we're, we're usually born and we're handed a particular set of ideals. We're handed, you know, whether we're left, whether we're right, we're handed, you know, religion. And sometimes we change, sometimes we don't. But to separate yourself out from your ideas enough to go, you know, these, this is what I've been given today and I'm going to do my best with this. But, you know, next week I might explore the alternate perspective. Does, has that enabled you in your life to be able to, to hold both sides of a coin, hold both sides of an argument? Yes, and there was a period where I thought this was this skill, and it, it it really is a skill, was both a blessing and a curse. So by training, I'm an economist, and there's a joke about economists where like you ask them what they think, and they say, well, on the one hand, then on the other hand, and on the third hand, basically, <laughs> that you you never get a you never get a straight answer out of economists, and it compound that with you're an economist who is also a debater. And so it's very easy to construct different arguments. And so there was a period of my life where I said, well, like you can go either way on all of these things. And that that is true for many things. Like many um, of these issues, some of the ones we just talked about are complicated and nuanced. And it's good to be able to see both sides of those. It doesn't necessarily force you into that inquiry of, okay, but at the end of the day, what do I, outside this useful but fake envi environment of a debate, what do I personally actually believe? So there was a period of my life where I felt I was in this, you know, the weird kind of suspended animation state of between all of, between the worlds of people who formed a point of view. What I now recognize is that the, these are just tools. They are skills that allow you to sort through other people's arguments. Remember, you don't like you don't own the arguments. Like the arguments don't own you. Sort through them and formulate a belief, something that you, as you as you might say, that that I know for sure right now. Mm -hmm. And it, again, just that that the, the act of sifting through. What are you looking for when you're sifting through an argument? And I'm going to link this to you know the crafting because to craft. An argument is a very specific set of skills, you know, you or to craft an opinion, a coherent opinion, 
what what do you look for when it comes okay I'm going to craft a an opinion here opinion piece or an argument what are you looking for oh that's such an that's such an interesting frame to the question I don't know let me let me try and talk it out let me try and talk out my thought process so if I say either there is something controversial or complicated they need a group of people to work through. And that could be, you know, should we buy or sell this company? What is the, you know, if you're trying to build a social movement, what is the right strategy to enroll people in the movements? Or it could just be you're trying to sort through something as a family. I, I think I do start with that place of saying, um, what, what can we all agree on here? What do we all agree is true? So kind of step number one. And that can be a way of saying, what are what are facts right but it can also be you know, what are our shared values right do we also believe that we like must go through this very controversial process in a in a respectful way uh, you know the michelin tire company one of their company values is among you know, respect for people and stakeholders in the planet is respect for facts and i just love that so i said i'm going to start with respect for facts what a what an extraordinary company value i talk about it all the time but so what can we say is true? What do we what do we share here? Facts or otherwise? That is kind of is step number one. And some people say, oh, like you're just kind of sifting like the junk out of the way, like so that we can get to the real stuff. That is the real stuff. That's a really important starting point. Then I think I try to write down, um, or you can talk it out loud with another human being. Um, what are the places where um, what are the arguments in favor um, of whatever we are trying to do? Then what are the natural objections to those? What are the immediate objections that people might have? Um, and, and how would we respond to those? Not how do you make those go away, but how could you respond to those? How could you integrate those into your point of, into your point of view? And then what would we do next? What's the next right thing coming out of this conversation? And very often the next right thing is you have to have another conversation. And then we have to do this again and again and make really slow incremental progress. And people don't always love that answer. They're like, no, no, no. Like, let's get a winner and a loser. Like, come on. Like, and let's like, let's move. And then like the losers go home, lick their wounds, like the winners move on. But what you actually see, and there's a lot of research tracking people who make profoundly important, but very slow progress over time. And those are like people who work on international climate change agreements. And thank God those folks exist. Like, thank goodness they are as patient as they are. And you, a lot of the research says, the individuals who are really successful at that are courageously patient and they just build and build and build. They say, it's okay, next time we will have another meeting and we will have another meeting and we will make slow and steady progress. I think, and this is an incomplete answer, I bet many of your listeners have better techniques, but when I am trying to confront my own ideas to say, but Think you might be wrong about it. If we're honest, we're probably wrong about most things. Um, what am I doing? I think I am kind of sensing the environment and everything I read, things that I hear people say for something that is surprising. And maybe that sounds a little bit cheap. Like it's like shouldn't like, there shouldn't be a better method than just going out there and looking looking for surprise. Um, but you know, Daniel Kahneman, who won the won the Nobel Prize in economics, says like one of these really important lessons from history is that like things are surprising, right? And that's so if you go out and expect to be surprised by things, you say the places that are surprising. That's a kind of polite confrontation with your existing beliefs and prejudices. 
it's not, I don't know, it's not a terrible place to start. I got, I've got a friend who similarly, he uses the word fascinating, which used to drive me crazy. You know, <laughs> we'd drive me crazy. We'd, something would go wrong. Um, something would happen. And he'd say, oh, isn't that fascinating? And I'd be like, no, it's Terrible. not fascinating. It's I'm not fascinated <laughs> in this moment. But he just has this beautiful approach to information that he either doesn't like or doesn't fit with his paradigm or he didn't want to see. He just approaches it with this sense of fascination. Isn't that, that's completely different to what I thought. Isn't that fascinating? And he's looking constantly for fascination. He has this radar for fascination, which is just, you know, other than, you know, when your car breaks down and someone calls it fascinating, that, um, it's a really beautiful lens on the world and it enables you to evolve. It's a very, it's a kind of intellectual stoicism of like, I will think like, inf- it, like information will flow in and out of my life. And, and the information is indifferent to how I experience the information. Isn't that, isn't that yeah. fascinating? I love that. And it's also how I, I often look for podcast guests or, you know, my background is working with, with speakers and how I used to look for speaking talent was give me an idea that challenges an assumption I have. Like, give me an idea that cuts through the noise of, of what I believe, what everybody else thinks. Give me an idea that challenges in some way, shape or form, that makes me sit back, that makes me take notice. Because those are the ideas that tend to change things, that tend to move people forward. Right. And it's just like one of these principles of behavioral science that our mind is hardwired to notice things that are surprising for us, that stand out from the well, either what we expected to see or from what we commonly see. I wonder if you, how you feel like that's such a good lesson from your marketing science speaker selection for other people to say, you know, there are people like me who go around saying, you know, these, these are uncomfortable conversations for people and we have to have productive disagreement and it can feel heavy for folks and you bring people together. And instead there's this uh, kind of marketing lens on it that says, but hang on a second, like don't people actually want to be surprised don't people want to be provoked isn't that actually one of the ways in which we are entertained and through being entertained how we how we become engaged in something and I wonder if that's just a very positive reframe on and it's actually really your mind. An, am, an amazing intersection between your world and mine because you know the in my world you take an idea exactly what you talked about you take a shared reality you take an idea that everybody can agree on and then you overlay it with a challenge of assumption about that idea, a new twist, a new frame on that idea. And that is what, I mean, that's also storytelling. You know, that is what captures people's attention. So you start with the agreement. We all agree on this now. Okay, but here's a, here's a flip. Here's a flip for you. And by starting with the place of agreement, and I actually talk about that when I train people to give big presentations, you start with commonality. Start with a question or something that's going to get everybody in the room, everybody on the same page, and then you can drive the conversation forward from there. Get us to agree that we need to be here and that we we have things in common, which is very similar again. Um, let's just talk about, let's dive into that shared reality piece. Um, why is starting with a shared reality so important? There is a tendency in, in the human brain for People say, if I 
if there is someone that I disagree with about something, then we're, we're like facing off on opposite sides of something, right? The street uh, table, uh, whatever else. And what I'm hoping to do, I, I think the idea of negotiation is that eventually we meet in the middle. Obviously not what we like secretly are saying is like, you're going to come, you're going to recognize how wrong you are. You'll like say how wrong you are and apologize for that and like come across the street over to my, like this is everyone's, this is everyone's secret dream. It's not realistic. It's not, it's not a realistic goal. It's also not a helpful goal in terms of like, respecting where that person might be at. So if instead we can say, like, what do we agree is true? Do we, do we, like, do we have respect for facts and what can we agree are facts in this situation? You've sort of moved the orientation from saying, let us face off against each other to let us face towards the problem. Like we are, let us sit side by side. I'm not saying that we're in agreement. I'm not saying we see the world the same way, but let us, can we at least agree to face the problem rather than facing each other? And that says, firstly, this is, it's no longer about you or me. It is about whatever we are trying to solve. And we are, it gives you a little bit, um, of, I guess, productive detachment from your own identity around it. I think it's also, it can be for people who we are in really long relationships with, right? Think about like family members, like every holiday, like we're going to go through this like, one more time. I just can't, I just can't, I just can't do this again. It can be really helpful to say, to remember there's a person here. There's a person here um, who has their own set of needs, preferences, hopes, dreams, desires. And if we can talk about like, what are the dreams that we share? What are the hopes that we share? Then maybe you can start to make a little bit more progress. I think sometimes, and this is, I think it's really understandable um, that people say there are people who have views and express views that are wildly objectionable to me that in many cases are hateful and offensive and if, if i were to do what you are suggesting um, you're, you're giving dignity to those views you're you're allowing the acceptability of those views alongside one another and that's not i think the goal of what you're trying to do here it's not that all views are equally like equally worthy of a hearing. Um, it's not that like th there are facts and, and there are opinions and those two things are not the same thing. They're not equally worthy in how we make decisions. But just because you have said to someone whose views that you, you might find in general wildly objectionable, are there places where we have agreement? It's not an obligation to accept everything else that that person believes. Mm, but it gives you a foundation, right? Even if it's a foundation to say, you know, this this is where we come together, and at this point we diver at this point we diverge, and and that's okay. You know, let's pass me some bread. <laughs> you know, like, but but in these points we come together enough to be able to share a meal, enough to be able to coexist in a family, enough to be able to, you know, we sh we share these common things, and here, you know, here we come apart, but but we share these things to discuss. I find to discuss shared caring really powerful. You know, when my husband and I are disagreeing about a, a strategy for the kids or a plan for the kids or, you know, to discuss shared caring, like we both, we both care deeply about our daughter's ability to be able to thrive. Let's start there. 
and to to express that first just I don't know emotionally brings you both together on the same side and then the rest is just tactic after after that point um I, I also want to just touch on respectful listening because I feel like and maybe it's because I've been watching the debates recently I feel like we've lost a, a commonly agreed upon definition of what that looks like or should look like um so I'm going to ask you, what does respectful listening look like? If you were to think about how you might structure a conversation or a meeting that has norms of respectful listening, what would you say? I think you would say one person speaks at a time. We listen to people with the same intensity, regardless of their level of seniority. But you might also say we recognize that people have different amounts of expertise and experience that they're going to draw from in this conversation. You might think about the difference between a politician and a physician in some of the conversations about COVID, right? People have different amounts of expertise and we should make room to clarify that. And then I think respectful listening is also being able to say to people here is what i here's what i understood you to have said not let me not let me play back to you what you said but here's what i understood you said and the if that is not what you're intending to say like the the fault is on my side for not having properly um assimilated what you were like the messages that you were sharing and I think it is also not just waiting for your turn to speak or your turn to respond, but knowing really genuinely approaching it in a spirit of integration of saying, I'm trying to integrate what you are saying into what I'm saying. I'm not just waiting. I'm not, I'm not just waiting for it to be my turn. And I have in general found it helpful in terms of soliciting people to say more in very charged situations. People often say, I hear you. And I think that can be quite dismissive. It's not intended that way usually, but it's often read that way. It was like, like, I hear you. Like, it's like, is it my turn? Yes, yes, I have. I've yeah, it's right. you. I hear you. And I, <laughs> I hear you. Like now, exactly. Now, now it's my turn. Um, and instead, just actually saying to people, I am listening. And if you think about people where you have wild disagreements, you probably don't want to say, I hear you, because you might think that has an implication of, I agree with you. You might not want to, you might not want to play back what they said, because you might say, I think it's really objectionable, or I don't, I don't want to give credence to it. But th something that you can always say is, I am listening. And just how powerful that one sentence is in all situations, like from a personal life to your professional life. I'd never thought about the distinction from, you know, I hear you to I am listening. Just I want you to know that I am listening. And a completely wild segue, but when I was giving birth to my son, there was a lot of things that were going on medically at the time. There was a lot of people in the room. Um, there's a lot of like machines and, and noise. And, you know, in the midst of all of that, there is me just very focused on, on what I have to do and trying to communicate, you know, in between like half breaths in between contractions. And I remember um, a midwife just 
crouching near my head because I couldn't even lift my head, crouching near my head and saying the words, I am listening to you. I am listening. And just how powerful that was for me in that moment for someone to say those words because, you know, you can feel like you're just drowned out by, you know, and not just in that situation but in lots of situations. You're just drowned out by the amount of stimulus and sound and opinions going on. And that's such a like powerful demonstration of very quiet leadership from her as well, right? Because um, it's not as though there, there was no offer. There was no like, I'm, I'm going to make all of these people shut up. There was no like, here are the specific, there's no plan that here are the specific things that I'm going to do. And you can think about a situation that might be like very charged. Um, there might be a lot of disagreement. People might want to do, want you to do something that you're not able or willing to do in that moment you're just saying I am listening like that's that is what we can always offer someone else the dignity of someone's voice to give them the dignity of their voice um which leads me kind of to my next question which is around power and balance um I was talking to a lawyer recently and we were talking about using her voice more and she was saying sometimes she was like there's just no room like there's I don't want to interrupt people who are more senior than me um, because they are like full on in cadence, like, you know, in a rhythm, like full steam ahead. She's like, I have an opinion, but there's like, how do you interrupt somebody respectfully if, you know, you're just getting no airplay at all for your opinion or expertise? I, I mean, I gave her the ben- you know, I gave her some advice, but you would be, I would rather she ask you. So I ask on her behalf. I'm, I'm super, I'm super curious to hear what you said, but there are a few things. The first, and it's so important to call out that if you are the person in that situation with more agency, more power, you have to constantly remind yourself there are some people who get interrupted more than others. Um, in general, in most situations, those people are women, they're people of color, they're younger people or people in the organization with less formal authority. And so even if you say to yourself, I'm like, I wouldn't do it, I'm a very kind person, you probably do do it and just remind yourself that you do it. And for those people, the second thing that's going to be really tempting for you to do is to say to those people, oh, just like stop me when I do it, Tell, call me out on it, stop me when I do it, ju- or, just, or, just, or just keep talking. Exactly, exactly. And that's not a reasonable, it's actually not even a very respectful request to make of people because often those are people who work for you. It's not something that's practical to do in the moment. And after the fact, if you call people out on it, and that's a brave thing to do for any of you who have done that, people will usually say, oh, I'm, re- I'm really sorry. But you know, my, my thing was very important. Like the, the moment was very urgent, whatever justification they have. So that's really important. If you have power, like use that power um, to be quieter, but also use it to actually call on people to invite people into the conversation and not say I'm going to say what I think and then I'm going to call on whoever say Julia what do you think and then I I can add some perspectives if I have anything else to say afterwards and there is a lot of there is a lot of power in saying I, I don't have anything else to add I thought that was well said so that's number one it's not super helpful for your friend in this exact situation what um can be done in that situation there so there's a tactical part of it, which is when you are interrupted, it is completely reasonable 
to continue speaking, right? And that's a real, I'm not undermining how challenging that is to do. That is a challenging thing to do. But just continue to speak at approximately the same volume, at approximately the same pace that you were before. You, you find yourself in a bit of a standoff briefly, but only for about seven words, right? Human beings are too awkward to keep it going longer than that. The other person is a graceful way of saying to the other person, like, I am not finished. What you are doing is rude uh, and inviting them to back off uh, a little bit. That won't always work. Um, if it doesn't, the other tactic that you might consider using is simply to say, I am almost finished or just a moment. Or, or you can say, Please, like, I am still speaking. Um, those of you who watched the vice presidential debates in the United States during the last presidential campaigns have, would have seen now Vice President um, Harris, then Senator Harris, do exactly this um, during some of the debates. She would simply say to Vice President Pence, I'm speaking, and to the moderator, I'm speaking. That, I think, is a perfectly reasonable um, intervention. The final thing that I will call out, because we all find ourselves in a Zoom world now, is the you setting some norms in your meetings that this is a meeting that will use the raise hand emoji is a and i know you're laughing you say that's so awkward i cannot imagine it i have a set of meetings and a set of clients that i work with where the norm and it's a very senior group of executives right uh the the norm is that people raise their hand and they wait to be called upon and they make their observation and we move on. Some of you out there are listening and saying, oh, God, that sounds very tiresome. That sounds very slow. It is slow in a really good way. It leads to a lot of deliberation. It leads to a lot of patience in the meetings. And one of the nice things that I love that happens is you, you then go in the order that people raise their hands, not the order of seniority. And you see people put their hands down. And they're saying, look, like this person just made the observation that I was going to make. Like, it's, it's fine. Like my point That's has been exactly made. That's what I was just thinking because that the act of raising your hand and waiting, often the heat of the moment disappears and you think, actually, do you know what? That wasn't so important to add to the conversation and the hand goes down again. Right. Or my, or my point has been like roughly made by this person in the same way. I don't, I actually don't need to, I don't need to make it again. And it is, it, it's really initially uncomfortable. If you have not tried this, even if you are saying to yourself, I am a relatively junior or a relatively new person in like whatever meeting or community um, I find myself in, this is a pretty low stakes experiment that you could do tomorrow. I'm just saying just one meeting, just try it, see what happens. And I promise you that what will happen is someone will call on you and you, people are going like, to laugh. People are going to find that strange and awkward and you can just keep doing it and people will call on you and having called on you, they will then not interrupt you, right? Because they, they can't, like, how could they? Having just invited you to speak, they then can't come in over the top of you. I will note then, this is hilarious, that in, these, in this group that is a very disciplined hand raiser, when people start to feel very strongly and you know, there are many hands raised, you will see the raise hands emoji and then if it's a video conference, you also see people raise their physical hands. And it's just, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, yes, you're trying to express that you feel very strongly. We are coming to you. This is my red underline <laughs> highlighter version of, of my raised hand. Like a small um, child, like like at school. Uh, like yes. bouncing on your chair. Exactly, yes. Um, I love that you said, you know, setting up the norms because that actually was my 
that was my piece of guidance where, you know, the, the challenge that this particular woman was having was getting a word in edgeways. And, and I, you know, I said it before you go into these meetings, it was a particular person who was more senior than her that she worked with directly. I said, what I would advise you do is just somehow have a five minute conversation with them as part of the planning conversation about how you're going to handle this meeting and say, there are a couple of important points I really want to make here on this topic and this topic. Um, I want to ask for your support in, um, in me bringing those to the table in me having some airplay to bring those to the table and actually bring them on side as an advocate, bring yeah. them alongside as, as a support person. And that way, even if it doesn't happen, there will be knowledge that a request for support was made and that it wasn't delivered. And then, you know, the next time it will be even more obvious if, you know, the airplay isn't given at that time. And most people want, you know, most people want to help if somebody requests for support most people will say you know actually I think that I'll make it up I think that Sarah had something that she wanted to contribute on this topic so yeah to to set the norms for the conversation to set some ground rules for the conversation um I just want to move move on a second I want to go back to we talked about the importance of changing of changing our minds and again I'm just going to go to a quote of yours which was we need people with the technical skills of debate and persuasion, not because we get to be right, but because we get to change people's minds and change our own. What, why is the willingness to change our minds so important in debate in that very specific world? So in that, think about the very specific environment of debate, you you, and this, you'll think about these people as doing like hundreds, thousands of debates over the course of their lives. You will jump around, right? You actually, what you are building is not a set of opinions or a set of arguments on a subject that you can then reuse over and over again. You're actually trying to build up intellectual flexibility so that you could construct a set of arguments um, for um, for any for a given conversation. So in the in that skill context of why why do you need to be able to do it? That's the job, right? That's the mission of people who are like, trying to build up this like very niche skill of like technical competitive debate is it's not about do you have like the most facts? Have you memorized the most arguments for the most debate topics? The, some of that knowledge is a part of it of course, but actually it's do you when you're training debaters, when you're trying to coach people to be really world-class debaters, that's what you're coaching for. It's not, please memorize these arguments that I know, but can you, do I have confidence that you, when the coach is not present, will be able to construct these arguments independently? And I think there are some people who would say, this is just, is one very specific application of critical thinking skills. And I think that's true. It's a specific application of critical thinking skills and critical thinking practice like can you actually hold those ideas in the public square my my business partner and I we used to have when we had big decisions to make we used to do what we call the swap which is not a very technical term but the swap was okay I'm going to make a case for this course of action which I actually really want you make and, and you listen to me you make a case for yours I'll listen to you but then we have to swap then I have to make a case for yours and you have to make a case for mine and we we did it all of the time and it was one of the very best strategies for coming to um, an outcome that was not only one that we could both agree on but that took the best of both worlds because you were actually yeah. standing in the shoes of each world. 
And was it also a good way to practice just or even to demonstrate like out loud to each other diversity of thinking like here are additional arguments in favor of your idea that you have not yet like you've been thinking about this for a while you feel strongly about it but I'm against it I've also been thinking about what a terrible idea it is for a while but here are additional arguments in favor of your idea that you would not have come to on your own yeah I think that it um it was actually a really, it became a fun exercise for yeah. that exact reason, because you're looking at someone else's argument and your first initial thought is, let me tell you all the reasons that that sucks. Like that's what your brain's busy doing in the background. And when you know you're part of this particular um, way of running a conversation, your brain, you're forcing your brain to do something else rather than constantly construct reasons why I don't agree. You're like, no, I'm going to have to come up with something better than this. And so you're training your brain to go, okay, what, what else is good about this? What else is good about what she's saying right now that she might not have thought of or a new perspective that I can bring. And it forces you out of this very kind of constricted, solid, um, non-flexible space. It can be really tempting. I think for people to, and one of the ways in which you, you can add value in a meeting, in a situation, is to raise some objections. That's just like, 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 throw, like just throw some objections into the mix. And they, they can be helpful. Right? I'm not saying people should not raise their concerns, but forcing people to then go beyond that and say, here are my concerns, and here's how they might be resolved. And here are actually, on reflection, here are the things that I think are quite good about your idea or here's some things that are additionally useful about your idea. I love that because you're making it safe. Yeah. Wouldn't that be an incredible discourse, just an incredible discourse, even in the political sphere to hear, I'm going to say grownups, to hear grownups converse on important ideas in that way would feel completely different than the, as we said, the duty of division. Um, you also had this question, which I have adopted and I'm going to use as a parent from here on in, which is one of the most beautiful questions I've heard for a while. What can you share with me that will help me see what you see? Like that question is in those moments where you're like, I just, I so disagree. I'm so oppositional to what you're saying right now. I'm so a no. Just the pause. The pause and the introduction of that question, even if the end result is the same, how different your relationship would be at the end of that. And sometimes it is people have information that you don't have. And the more senior you are, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. People just have information that you don't have and they will not give it to you unless you ask for it. And you think they will. You think they will. Or you think you're a safe space unless you ask for it. And in a way that is genuine, says, what is it that you can see um, that would help me see what you see? Not what do you see that I can't see? Because they'll be like, oh, but you're all, you're omniscient. Like you see everything. <laughs> you see like, you're so great. Exactly. Um, what would help me see what you see as a question? You get more information. The second place or the second reason it can be useful is like you get some perspective about that person. Right, you say, like, and you think about really complicated, charged political issues. If you say, "What is it that you can see, or what can you see that would, and what can you share that would help me see what you see?" 
you will hear about their perspective. You will often hear things that they are afraid of. You will often hear a, a version of a story that sounds something um, like if other people advance, um, I will lose something. It is usually about a, a fear of loss. And our fears of loss come from real places, right? They come from our own lived experiences. So whether or not you agree that that's what's going to happen, whether or not you think that that's a rational fear, you'll learn something about where that person is starting from, which will give you that chance to build shared reality. Well, I'm going to, one of my last questions for you, I'm going to flip the question that we've been talking about on and off through this whole conversation. And that is, what have you changed your mind about recently? Firstly, I'm concerned that in the, I will not be popular in the master's household. Like I'm worried that a year from now, I just, like, I don't want to tell you what I see. Like, I don't want to share what I can see with you. So let us like, let's come back. Do, oh, like, another episode. Know, that, my, my, my kids, my kids are quick. Like, be, yeah, I'll ask that question a couple of times. They'll be like, yeah, that's good. And the third time they'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. Stop nudging us. Them. I don't, yeah. I don't want to be nudged. Stop um, with your clever things. Stop. Uh, stop. I just so, want the toy. All right. Um, that's uh, <laughs> that's so funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two. So one of the things that I've changed my mind about one is just an example of perspectives that you're really socialized in. I went to an all girls school. I went to the same school from prep. This is what we call kindergarten in some parts of Australia to year twelve. I went the, my whole my yeah, my my whole primary and secondary education. Uh, it was coincidentally um, an all girls school, and I had never really kind of investigated this belief. It took a really long time. Terrific is a terrific school, but in my mind, I said I think that um, single sex education for girls um, just just is superior. And it's, it is superior on all measures. And he really held on to this for a long time. And the picture is way more mixed, right? The picture is way more complicated um, than that to say that it is, is superior on all measures for all girls. It's this it is absolutely not right. And it took me, and this might sound like a really simple example for, for some people, but for me, this is a really core part of my lived experience. It was a really strongly held belief for me. And it is one that is, if you think about respect for facts, there just aren't good quality facts around it. The second one, and this is, I think this is timely in the context of, or timely for the conversation we're having in the context of the Australian election. For non-Australian listeners, voting is compulsory in Australia. You have to be registered on the electoral roll and you have to show up at a polling station and take a, and take a ballot um, on election day. It's compulsory. We all do it. Uh, everyone does it. I have already like posted back my ballot from here in the United States. And I, this is the exception, though most countries don't have this. And I forever would get in really deep fights with not usually non-Australians um, about the power of compulsory voting. I just said I think this is the this is the solution to so many things. It is the solution to getting dark money out of politics in the, in the United States, for instance. It's a solution to people not feeling represented and included and, and so on and so forth. Actually, still in general, I would say like if I like had to come down one way or the other uh, on this issue, I still am genuinely I'm like, no, I think I, in a country that I would construct, I think voting would be compulsory. Um, but I 
also now recognize it's not a universal good in the way that I used to think about it as a universal good. It's not a panacea for all kinds of problems. Do you have one? Do you have a mind change? Oh, God. I, do you know what? I wasn't expecting that. Do I have a mind change? Do I have a mind change? I am, um, yeah, because we're deep in the election yeah. right now. And I had, I had a firmly held belief that um, the that swapping, swapping governments halfway, like swapping governments now, would be you know you don't swap leadership when you're still you know when you're still at sea and the the, the seas are still choppy and. Um, I had a firmly held belief that that was, that was a bad idea. And to the point where I noticed in myself that I wasn't even listening. I had just latched onto that idea. I wasn't listening. Oh, you just like made up your mind. I'd made up my mind. I wasn't listening to the debates. I wasn't, I wasn't paying any attention, which is unlike me, um, because I had made up my mind. And then I, I don't know, I just, I kind of caught myself. And I thought, you know, I have not been open to a single idea outside of of that kind of chamber of my belief. And so I made myself go back in. Um, I made myself listen to the debates. I made myself, you know, pay attention to pay attention to the ideas. And, And I just made myself open, open back up. And it was similar to the the Trump election actually where I was so convinced I was so entrenched of my own righteousness about you know Trump not being fit for power that I and my husband thought it was hilarious I I suddenly had this moment where I realized that everything was agreeing with me you know, yeah. the newspapers that I was reading were agreeing with me the articles were agreeing with me everybody was agreeing with me and I don't know there's something in me I've just done this work for a long time where I started to get suspicious because when everything agrees with me, I'm like, okay, no. It's a bit too vindicated. Yeah, I feel too vindicated right now. I've lost some kind of balance in my information input if everything is agreeing with me. And so I stopped reading the normal newspapers that I would read and I started reading um, very different newspapers than I would usually read. I signed up, which again my husband thinks is funny, I signed up to Trump's newsletter. Yeah. And started reading it because I was like, there has whether which you know whether I change my mind or whether I do not on this topic, I need to feel like I gave both opinions equal credence and equal levels of curiosity in order to to hold what I hold. So, you know. I have changed my mind on certain aspects of the, of the first example. The second example, I, I did not change my mind eventually. However, that those are both examples of moments where I've gone, do you know what, I'm just, I'm too rigid here right now. I'm not enjoying how rigid I am. I, I, first, I really admire that first example. Like it would have been tempting to say, hey, there are lots of places that you can put your time and energy it looked like I have made my mind, like I've formed this pretty reasonable conviction. There's not that much time left. I'm done. But instead you said, like, I'm going and, and make a non-trivial amount of effort. I'm going to re-engage with these debates. I'm going to start paying attention. I'm going to try and have this confrontation with myself about that. I think that's, I, I think that's really neat. I mean, that is really, really admirable. 
And we talked a little bit earlier about the Sam Ray Dalio observation. You have nothing to fear from knowing the truth. I think it might be more appropriate to say um, you have nothing to fear by looking for more information. Absolutely. And, you know, I kept with, with the Trump that I kept getting caught. I think it was 52 percent of women voted for him. And so I was like, there is something that I am missing here. Because with the information that I have, that doesn't stack up. And so there's, there's got to be something that I'm missing here. Like I'm not listening to some perspective. I'm not looking for some piece of information here because, you know, that, that just doesn't, it doesn't add up for me. So, yeah, to try, to try and notice when I feel rigid, I think that's probably the biggest. And it's hard because you've got to invest time after that, right? And feeling, and, and feeling right feels good. And it's done, box ticked, made up my mind. I can move on. I got plenty of stuff going on. <laughs> it's so it's so true, right? Like reopening the box doesn't feel good either, right? It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't always make you feel like a smart person either, right? You fear that it will mean acknowledging that the like the, the previous you was not a smart person, but it is a it, like it's a very it's a very smart, very human choice. And I think it's just an acknowledgement that where your attention goes, um, a lot of your beliefs will follow. Um, and where your beliefs follow, a lot of your values can follow. But you can make a choice about where your attention goes, what you choose to discover, what you end up being surprised by. And especially now when all algorithms point to general vindication of whatever viewpoint you have. Okay, final, final, final question. For anybody who's heading into a debate today, might be a debate with a family member, might be a debate with a child, might be a debate um, with at work with with you know stakeholders. What's the one piece of guidance you would give them as to how to prepare for that debate? I would say, see if you can begin that conversation by saying, um, "Would you mind if I described what I think we already agree on?" This forces you a little bit to your, this is the kind of artificial version of your swap to put yourself in the shoes of the other people. And then, and it also forces you to humanize those individuals a little bit, as well as do the intellectual work of saying, really, what is it? What is it that we agree on here? Do I, and do I think my point of view is a reasonable one? And then you, you then you're kind of putting yourself out there in the conversation you're saying, do you mind if I describe what I think we agree on and there's a chance that someone will say oh okay like absolutely wrong like in incorrect like I don't I don't agree with any of that which is space for I think that person to um to channel your friend a little bit and say fascinating like could you try to like could you do the same could they like, could you share and um, what you and what you think we agree on and if you start from that place and again you're trying to like move from the looking at the people like facing the people to face the problem then i'm not saying that you will make progress though i hope we hear lots of great stories from your listeners who do but you increase the the probability the possibility of progress mm, i love that julia thank you so much for your time I know it's it's late in the evening with you, but I've I've just loved this conversation. I hope it sparks many, many more conversations. As always, a conversation about disagreement, things that can make us uncomfortable about negative emotions. It brought me so much joy. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.